Is re-educated, brought to you by your host with the most, Gautam Yegapin. I'm honestly blessed to be able to put out another episode. Enjoy and stay thirsty for knowledge. And I guess water too. I hope y'all are having a fantastic week. As it gets colder, I'm getting nice and warm and cuddly. I'm from California, living in D.C. now. And I can say one thing, my wardrobe is not built for this. Everybody out here is dressed in nice suits, coats. They look all comfortable while they look very fashionable. I'm out here with like two different sweaters on top of each other, just trying to put on as many layers as possible, trying to get through this cold. But I will get through this. Today, we have an extremely special guest. His name is Zach Mabel. He is the research professor of education and economics at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. While I've been speaking to a lot of people in the educational space, something that comes up often is equity, but I find it very interesting that each person kind of has a different understanding of what an equitable education system even looks like. So I wanted to start the conversation here and ask Zach, what exactly does an equitable educational system look like to you? To me, equity is about um, providing the same level of quality and opportunity to people regardless of what neighborhood they live in, how much family income they have, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, we, we live in, in a society where we sort of really believe strongly in this meritocratic myth. Um, the reality is that a lot of the meritocracy that you see and that people are sort of evaluated on, if you think about college admissions and, you know, how heavily oftentimes test scores are considered in the admissions process, well, test scores are telling you something about an individual's, you know, um, sort of innate academic ability, but it's also telling you a whole heck of a lot about how much privilege and access to opportunity they've had throughout their life um, up to the point of college entry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, so I was actually speaking with a cohort of mine about, you know, what are some ways in which testing can accommodate those things, right? Because for example, even when you take, the essay aspect of applying to colleges. Nowadays, you have a lot of people who have access to tutors. Someone could basically write the essay for you. Oh, for sure. People do, right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. And so you you couldn't even say that, you know, you could move away from tests and, and you can solely rely on recommendation letters, this and that, because even those could very easily be forged. So, you know, you would need to do something where, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, before I kind of share mine. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I think, um, there needs to be more opportunities for, um, uh, more investment in holistic admissions. You know, the reality, the reality is that holistic admissions is a practice that, um, many selective colleges are already practicing or, you know, interested in practicing. Um, and you know, the evidence I've done some research in this sort of space, um, the evidence I would sort of summarize as, um, makes a difference on the margin to increasing some semblance of um, diversity in terms of the admitted class, but isn't uh, a game changer in terms of, you know, opening the floodgates to um, lots of, you know, historically underrepresented students on selective college campuses. So, um, you know, it's not by any means a silver bullet to the policy. 
uh, or, or sort of to addressing the problem. The other thing is is that um, you know selective colleges really serve a very very small slice of the college going population of students in this country. And so when we think about sort of going back to the bigger question about equity and about creating, you know, um, higher quality educational opportunities for all students, the solution cannot be focused on selective colleges alone. We really need to think about bringing quality and bringing fairness down to the institutions that are serving the masses of students. And these are your broad access for your colleges and universities and your community colleges. Um, and we live in a world where there are tremendous resource discrepancies between the selective colleges and the other colleges that serve most students, um, which I think we need to um, increasingly shine a light on and um, deserves, um, you know, uh, some some real evaluation and critique about what sorts of outcomes we should be expecting from. Mm those institutions and the students that are going to those colleges if we are not funding them in the same way that we are funding um, students who are attending uh, more selective institutions and where most of those students are also already coming from places where they have a ton of resources at their disposal. As our conversation continued, I focused my attention towards Zach's experience fighting inequity through his work as a researcher at the College Board. What the College Board did was they developed a, a tool called Landscape, um, which they made freely available to um, selective colleges that were interested in piloting this tool as part of their admissions process um, in order to provide more background information on applicants that was standardized across all the applicants that applied to the college and provided information about um, the high school that a student went to and the high school peers of the applicant, uh, as well as the neighborhood in which the, the student lived. And um, the idea uh, was that by providing this information, which was standardized across all applicants, it would help admissions officers contextualize the background of where an applicant lives and learns. Um, that was sort of the operating um, hypothesis is that, you know, you build this tool, you provide it to admissions officers, um, and then and then the, the study that, that um, I led was to evaluate what the effect of mm. rolling out this tool was on the admissions decisions um, and the crafting of, of the class that was admitted to each of the colleges that piloted this tool. Um, and so, as I sort of alluded to before, you know, we basically found was that um, there were some some effects, but they're quite small, and they only showed up in terms of um, increasing the um, acceptance rates among students from very high uh, high challenge backgrounds. Um, uh, but it didn't actually translate into uh, more of those students enrolling. You know, the, the tool wasn't designed to actually get those students to enroll. It was designed to help admissions officers, you know, better identify and differentiate between applicants and therefore offer them a slot for admission. Um, but there's clearly many more challenges and barriers that need to be addressed to actually changing the composition of the students that enroll in the school because the tool itself didn't actually have an impact on, on changing who shows up 
um, uh, on campus at the end of the day. So it seems that through Zach's explanation, that even as we make these application processes more holistic, it is not solving the problem of inequality. And this can be traced back to the fact that the actual application pool is not changing itself. And so as we move into this world where holistic admissions begins to take a larger play, I think some interesting problems are going to arise in that. So let's take, for example, some of the UC systems and I think most schools now take standardized testing to be optional. But what exactly does that mean? When you see two applicants and one provides a SAT score and the other one does not, how is it possible to basically view the two applications as the same? Because one individual has provided more information. And at what point is this information that they have provided better than not having provided it at all? And I think another interesting element of holistic approaches towards these applications is that you move away from an objective and closer to a subjective. At which point, let's say I've been able to create a portfolio through my 12 years of primary education and I put in it, you know, pieces of art, poetry, all of this. How can that actually be measured? If somebody submits their swimming tapes and their basketball mixtapes and another person submits their poetry and art, the two can't be compared. And so as we move farther from numbers in a more objective metric, we leave it up to the people who are actually reading these applications to just come up with their own value judgment. With this in my mind, the conversation then switched into understanding some of the complications in actually implementing these holistic approaches. I think the reality is that a lot for some institutions that are really, really large, they don't necessarily have the privilege of doing that because of just how large their application volumes are. And so they have to rely on some tools and they have to rely on test scores and some institutions even rely on test score cutoffs. And they say, you need a score, you know, greater than 1200 or else we can't even consider you because they just need to make it um, tangible, the, pro the, the admissions process tangible. If you're in a world where you have to rely on, on uh, heuristics and numbers in order to make the process feasible, um, you hope that the numbers are correlated with those intangibles uh, such that you're going to pick up enough of those students. But I don't think you, can, you would be able to confidently say that you um, know with certainty that any individual person that you've admitted has those competencies unless you're explicitly measuring them. Mm. Um, and and I, th I think there are a few institutions that ha are actually bringing in um, sort of social-emotional so social uh, mm. assessments and dimensions to the application process, but that is definitely at the frontier of the admissions process mm. right now, and it's not what most institutions are doing. I mean, yeah, I mean, as, you know, as quantitative people, I feel like there's a part of me that very much wants to be able to, like, just collect all of someone's experience and bring it down to a number. And then another part of me, which is the more empathetic part, I'm like, that world also looks kind of dangerous if we can very accurately, you know, measure someone's grit or measure someone's, like, I, I don't know if that's a world I really want to live in either, you know, so it's yeah. kind of hard to, to be, be in both. For sure. I mean, like that, that just, it, it reminds me a lot about the, um, 
the political dynamics uh, around elections and sort of the mark, like the, the creation of psychological profiles that, you know, with sort mm. of like a lot of the data science work that, um, <laughs> that has been done and then targeting, you know, marketing campaigns to those individuals in order to activate them to be voters. And, um, there's a lot of, uh, of value to some of that work. And there's a lot of danger to it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think there's another dimension to it, which is that, um, uh, falling prey to the notion that, um, anything you can measure or quantify is truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's a fallacy, but I think I, I feel like we're sort of creeping down that path, you know, without, without intention, but, um, it's so attractive yeah. to want to be able to have a concrete number at your disposal and, um, and, and then ignore everything else that is maybe abstract and is hard to quantify, um, of course. As the conversation continued, we moved from talking about holistic admissions and the admission process into what exactly is the value of college itself. Zach began to explain how the college going rates has actually changed drastically in recent times. In the 60s and 70s, you could still, you know, do quite well in the labor market and, and make a, you know, a, a decent middle class wage with um, a high school degree and, you know, maybe some, some training in a trade, you know, th those opportunities have, have dried up, you know, as we've all heard about, you know, the Rust Belt, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so now, you know, the, the, the best chance that you give yourself in order to, to do well um, in terms of getting a good job is, is getting a college degree. And so, you know, I'm really excited to actually ask you, and you just said this right now, but from your experience working at, at the CEW, what would, how would you define what a good job is? What does that look like to you? Well, so, I mean, at, the, at CEW, there's, you know, the, the center has a, a whole body of work around this, and they, there's a definition of, of how the center defines a good job um, with, you know, different cutoffs of earnings based on your age profile. Um, uh, you know, a, a good job needs to to pay an individual a living wage, I think that that's sort of a fundamental. Um, and, um, you know, offer some quality benefits and um, provide an individual with some flexibility such that when unanticipated, you know, life circumstances, responsibilities come up and, you know, you need to turn your attention to, to, to something else, that the job understands that that stuff happens, that your job is still going to be there when you are able to turn back to it and give it your focus again. Um, and, um, and that you're, you're not just, uh, always on the, on the edge of either, you know, adequacy or, um, uh, struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, I, as I, I see some of my friends start working, you know, in, in the tech space or in other spaces like this, I feel like there's also this element of feeling like your work has impact 
or directly seeing the the like the effects of your work i was reading this thing about how like in these large corporate companies it's like oftentimes you may spend 40 50 hours a week but you'll never actually see what your work has done so i think there's elements of that as well as like your feeling of growing as a human being your capacity to be promoted or have more responsibility like i think those are all like really essential elements of what constitute a quote-unquote good job there are definitely people out there right there are definitely people who are working in the labor market who um they want a good job uh but you know maybe they're not interested in sort of the uh like rising the ranks and they they don't necessarily feel like they need to have a, a, a large society you know societal impact they maybe want to just feel the effects of their work uh in terms of the person that they're interacting with on a daily basis mm. you know as a, a client or you know having a helping helping one of their colleagues you know do their job better so you know i i think that people are would people for themselves would define differently what a good job looks like mm-hmm do you feel from your experience that that people need undergraduate degrees because of what they learn in their undergraduate degree? Or is it just a name-based thing where it's like, I have this, but I'm not using anything I learned and it's just kind of like a cutoff? Uh, this is an age-old debate in economics of um, is uh, when, when you are pursuing education... Uh, is it a, is the diploma or the degree a sheepskin effect? Meaning, you know, do you get an, uh, a wage premium? Are your earnings higher because of the degree? Because you just have the degree and there's some value to, you know, that paper. Um, or are you actually learning something from it? Are you accumulating human capital in the terms of economics? Um, and so it's not just, there's not just signaling value to, the degree there's actual knowledge and skill development that you've acquired in the process um no one has been able to resolve the um the debate my personal belief is there's probably a bit of both um and i think sheepskin effects where they're going to show up are going to show up early on in an individual's career because when an employer is considering to hire you for a job and you're fresh out of school and you maybe don't have a lot of work experience, they don't have a lot to go off of. And so they're in this world where you're, you're making decisions on heuristics again. And you're like, well, you know, here's this kid, Gautam. I know that he has a computer science degree from UCSD. That's pretty impressive. Uh, I'll give him a shot. And then fast forward five years later, you've worked at Amazon and you are being considered for a promotion. Well, your manager now knows a whole heck of a lot more about who you are, how you work and what you produce because you've been working there for five years. And so how you progress in your career once you're no longer a new entrant to the working world um, I think a lot more of that becomes based on your productivity and the quality of your work, etc., and less about sort of um, the signaling value of the educational experiences that you've had. Mm. And 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 I'm, I'm I believe in the research you talk about how there's a difference between the 
fields, right? Uh, yep. So it, it definitely uh, depends on the field that you're going into. Um, there's large variation in um, sort of average or median earnings across fields of study. Um, you know, uh, folks who graduate in STEM fields tend to earn a whole lot more than folks who graduate in humanities, um, especially earlier in their in their careers. Um, but you're right, it also matters a lot. It, so there's so many different factors in terms of sort of from the student consumer perspective of making the decision of should I go to college, if I should go to college, where should I go to college, uh, what should I study? Those are all of those questions are really important questions and they're all going to have an impact on what your likely financial outcomes are later on in life. Not, not, it's not going to be prescriptive. It's not going to tell you this is how things are going to play out, but it's definitely going to inform what the most likely out outcome is that you experience. And that's that, ladies and gentlemen. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation. It was a real pleasure being able to speak with Zach. If y'all have any questions, comments, please feel free to email me at gy118 at georgetown.edu. It was an honor to be able to bring this presentation and podcast to you all. Have a great week and stay re-educated.